My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Anna Willits and Sean Lee Popham. As much as many of us would love it if robust social movements could be built solely from elbow grease and radical vision, there are inevitably moments when organizing cannot proceed without another kind of input. Money. Though technology provides more options for grassroots fundraising than ever before, and the old tried-and-true methods can still be used, the truth is that movements in Canada have not been doing a very good job of figuring out how to get the resources that are out there in our extremely wealthy society into the hands of those who need them to advance struggles that might make it a more just and liberatory society. There are, however, experiments aimed at figuring out ways to do just that, and one of them is the Groundswell Community Justice Trust Fund, currently in its second year of raising money and distributing it to grassroots groups that are doing important work. Willits and Lee Popham are longtime organizers with experience in a range of movements, as well as board members at Groundswell. They talk with me about the vision that informs the fund, about how it works, and about their hopes for how it can grow and do even more to support movements in the future. I spoke with Willits and Lee Popham by Skype to phone from Toronto and Northeastern Ontario, respectively. My name's Anna Willits. I have been in Toronto since 1982. I've been involved with a number of different social movements. Very lucky for me, often that's been through my paid work, as well as through volunteer and stuff that I do outside of work. My background is mostly in working on women's and queer trans rights in the context especially of working against violence against women and queer and trans people. But I've also been involved in anti-poverty and anti-racism movements. I've done a lot of work around policing issues and police accountability. And in terms of Groundswell, I was not one of the founding members, but I've certainly been a member since the beginning. I was invited by Sean to become involved in this amazing initiative to look at different ways of funding really worthy grassroots activist organizations and campaigns particularly focusing on those campaigns and groups that are attacking the roots of oppression and that have a very difficult time raising money from mainstream funders, often because they don't have charitable status or they can't get sponsorship through a charity or because they are doing work that funders just don't want to fund because it's actually going to be very, very effective. My name's Sean Popham. I grew up in Toronto and was involved in various grassroots political social justice campaigns there. I was a member of anti-racist action when I was 15 and involved in high school students against the cuts. When Mike Harris first came to power, I did different anti-poverty work with OCAP and anti-globalization stuff. I was involved in helping start the Christian Justice Film Festival and even reasons to campaign against the youth jail in Toronto. And about seven years ago, I became a registered nurse and moved about three and a half hours north of the city, where I've been working in an emergency room and doing work outside, growing food, spending time in the bush, and been involved in local indigenous rights 
issues in the area and with harm reduction work here. And I uh, was part of starting Grantswell in 2010, and it's been an exciting project, both a way to look at how do we create more sustainable financial and economic models for organizations doing grassroots, confrontational, meaningful political work, but also how do we have conversations in communities about access to capital and how do people be accountable about that partly as they move into different parts of their lives where they may have more professional salaries or they're accessing inheritance from family. How do we have those conversations? We started in the spring of 2010 just having conversations about those two focuses on how frustrating it is as a member of an organization or watching other organizations do all this work to hold fundraisers. And, you know, you're working for months on a fundraiser and you make And then on the other hand, watching, you know, ourselves was in the process of becoming a registered nurse and different friends who were becoming professionals and, you know, making decisions to purchase houses or whatever it was and the increasing capital that they were having access to and how are we going to stay committed and accountable to some sense of a political community. And so we took a little bit of time to look at other models that existed and started to develop just some broad structural ideas. How would the organization be set up? How would funding processes happen? And kind of winter 2010, spring 2011, started to spread the word to people that we thought might be interested in being involved. And so we built up to a board of four, I think that summer, and then other people have joined since then, and we're now at 11 board members now? I think so, yeah. And I'll just add to that from my end, that when Sean talked to me about this and what they wanted to do, I thought it was a wonderful idea. The experience I've had in this area, um, the things that I think about and have been exposed to over the years, I've been working, like I say, since 1982 in charitable groups. For 17 years, I was with a collective called the Toronto Rape Crisis Centre, And the things that I've seen over the years, I've watched how the federal government has used the Charity Act to increasingly limit the ability of organizations and agencies. And many of these, especially in the women's anti-violence sector, of course, came out of movements, political movements. And I've watched how a combination of things, but certainly government regulations around the Charities Act and the way that use of money has been increasingly narrowed, the definition of what is political work and non-political work has been narrowed so that agencies are really hamstrung around their ability to do advocacy work. And in Ontario, of course, the Harris years saw that become even more increased And under the federal government, under the liberals and the conservatives for many years, we've seen that advocacy work and small p political work has been strangled. And so what I've seen from my end of things is watched agencies become less and less involved in organizing and mobilization in advocacy on a systemic level. And so that work is increasingly having to be done by small grassroots organizations A lot of workers and kind of more mainstream agencies have to do this stuff after work. And so the idea of Groundswell I saw as a really necessary part of supporting work that's going to make really significant change. 
I think we have for a long time relied on unions to fund that kind of work. But with the decimation of unions in Canada, those sources of funds are getting harder and harder to access. And so it's become much, much more difficult for the kinds of groups that apply to Groundswell to get money, especially for infrastructure and longer term stuff. And the core of people who have come together to make Groundswell happen, are there particular movements that they seem to have emerged from, or is it a real mix of different things that have been going on in Ontario in the last number of years? Certainly one of the requirements to be on the board is that people have been active in various movements in Ontario. People come from local migrant justice organizing, different anti-poverty work. Um, Union. And as I say, I come from police accountability and women's rights and anti-violence movement. So lay out for me how Groundswell works. How do you get money? How do you make decisions? How do you decide where to give the money? Each of the members of Groundswell, the trustees, I guess you would call us, we have made a list of people in our circle that we are approaching. And while we encourage people to give small donations, you know, sort of lots of small donations, and there's lots of examples of how well that can work if you can get lots and lots and lots of them. We also really are trying to focus on approaching a few people and asking them about making larger donations. We're talking about anywhere from 250 and on up to, you know, $2,000, $3,000. So we're approaching people who tend to be professionals, tend to be, you know, professors, lawyers, doctors, people we're acquainted with, people we've worked with in the past, also the members of Groundswell themselves. Most of us make a donation as much as we can each year. And we approach folks to talk with them about why we're doing this, the principles of Groundswell, the goals of Groundswell and the conversations that we're hoping to promote into things like Sean mentioned earlier, capital, money, you know, when we have extra money, what we want to do with that money to promote social change, that kind of thing. So that's where a lot of our funding has come from. We've had a couple of fundraisers as well that have also brought in money to Groundswell. So we're certainly looking at raising funds from wherever we can. But we also believe that, you know, approaching folks that have extra money and are looking for how they can leverage that money to do really good things in the community, that's where our focus is right at the moment. How we do our funding process. Um, we are right now in the middle of our funding process. This year we received approximately 30 applications. We put out the call for applications in December, and they were due February 15th. We distribute the call for applications through social media, through groups that applied. Last year, we printed calls for applications on postcards and sent them around at different events in Toronto and the surrounding areas, and through that, got over 30 applications. And we have a two-step process. We have a fairly basic application where we're asking people five or six different questions, little bits about the history of their group, what the project that they're looking to fund, the impact that it'll have on their work. We don't fund any groups that receive any level of state funding. So we ask questions about their finances for the previous year or the current year, and then a budget for what they're asking for. And then we have a two-step process as a board. Everyone currently is reviewing the applications, and we're actually meeting this 
weekend, and we will just do a summary review of the applications. We'll flag any sorts of conflict of interest that we as board members have with the applications. So, you know, are these groups that we're working with currently or have worked with in the past? We'll just note any gaps that the applications might have and create opportunities for groups to fill those in. And, you know, just any initial questions or concerns that come up. And then we'll meet again at the start of April, at which point we will figure out how much money we actually have to give. Every year, we give away 50% of all the funds that come in, and the other 50% we hold back to generate income and then for future capital projects. And we have a somewhat complicated to explain, but actually fairly <laughs> easy to use mathematical equation by which we all indicate of the total amount of money we'd like to give, how much we would give to each group. And then a spreadsheet kind of goes, and then it tells us the average that each group would get, and we review it, but that is essentially how we make our funding decision. How does the group feel about the kind of responses that you've gotten over the time that you've been operating to the efforts to get funds? It's been very positive so far. With the Kickstarter campaigns and Indiegogo and lots of different things like that, there are lots of different ways right now that people find to direct their extra cash. So we know that people have a lot of competing demands for their funds, but we've had really great response so far. Last year, we were able to raise $27,000, which we were really, really pleased about, and we were able to give away half of that. We've also had some great conversations. I know that I have. I can't speak to others' experience, but I've had some great conversations with people about why this kind of thing is needed. Also, some good feedback from folks about things for Groundswell to think about in terms of decision-making and going forward, how we'd like to have even more community involvement in the ways that we are doing Groundswell. So there's lots of really great conversations coming out of this. Like I say, I've had lots of people who have been willing to donate 100 or $200, and I've had a few people who've made donations of up to 2000 and that's been very gratifying to see that people think that what we're doing is a really good idea and something to build on. Part of the awkward part of it is that there are awkward things to talk about. It's awkward to talk about money, and it's awkward to ask about money, and when we've talked about it within the group, we've tried to conceive of it as partly asking for support, but just try to start conversations with people about access to wealth and economic accountability and that if we had the movements that we might want, if we had the movements that we're probably going to need, that these sort of structures would exist and that for whatever reason on the left in Ontario and Canada, it doesn't seem like we're going to move towards a party system where we have one group that marshals all our resources and we just tithe to that party, as people might have done historically or still do in other places. And so what are the structures that we're going to have that replace that so that groups can have access to the resources that they're going to need? Lots of the conversations that have been helpful has been looking at how the non-state-aligned right funds their work and the infrastructure mm -hmm. that they've managed to create, whether it's you know a specifically religious-based conservatism or conservatism in general, the immense infrastructure of newspapers and magazines and radio stations that are sustained through individual donations largely, although some of it is large donors giving huge amounts. And some of the work that Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, organization did in the states through their book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, and looking at mm -hmm. the holes 
the problems that those funding models create for groups trying to make change and how can we address those. So in the process of going from this would be a good idea to where you are today, where you've had success in bringing in money, you have supported groups, and you're moving forward with another year of doing that, what was the process of convincing both donors and recipients that this was something real, that this was something that would be accountable, and that this would be something that would be accountable in a different way than what that word usually means in our neoliberal culture, accountable to movements, accountable to communities? It certainly felt risky last year, asking for support, asking for donations when we had no proven track record. I think this year being able to point to the eight groups that received funding last year and the tangible difference that even just small amounts of money make for organizations has made it much easier. And the individual relationships that members of the board have, that we are all people who have been involved in social justice or movement building or whatever the languages that we're most comfortable with, but that we've come from these milieus. I think that's made it easier. I think a big piece of it is us developing relationships, right? Having these conversations with people and talking with them about the short and the long-term goals of Groundswell and why we see that it is something that is needed. We want people who donate to not just be, I mean, if what they want to do is donate money and that's it, and I don't want to have that conversation anymore, certainly that's fine. But we also want to develop a relationship with people so that they see this as something that they would do in an ongoing way. We want to talk with people about really investing in communities and investing in social justice in a meaningful way. And I think if people feel involved, then that builds the accountability because it becomes something that is about them and about their goals as well. And that means that they could also give us feedback and talk with us about what it is that we're trying to do. The other thing is that in terms of grantees, we've had feedback from grantees about the difference that Groundswell funding has made. We asked grantees to provide us with a short report on how they use their money. We try to use our website as a way to keep people informed about what their money is uh, accomplishing, as well as a way to keep groups informed about the kinds of things that Groundswell is funding and gives them a good idea about what makes sense for them to apply for. I don't know if that totally answers your question. Accountability I think that that's an interesting concept in terms of, as you say, the kind of the neoliberal, what's the number, you know, how many people got served, how many this and that. I do a lot of grant applications and, you know, have a lot of funders asking for very numbers-based kind of results, right, outcomes. And we're probably more focused on the qualitative and um, the kinds of ways that we can build social justice organizing. So give me a couple of examples from last year's grantees. You know, we funded a group last year at a Sault Ste. Marie, Stop the Arrest Sault Ste. Marie, which was a group of sex workers that came together there after women were charged under prostitution laws and their names were published and there was a lot of social stigmatization of them after mm -hmm. that. And to be able to support groups that traditionally don't get any support and don't even get recognition in activist circles. We supported an organization called So Solo, Supporting Ourselves, Supporting Our Loved Ones, which is an organization that was founded in 2011, 
supporting families who have members within their family who are in the prison industrial complex. And this was a group that hadn't received any financial support in the past. They were all doing this on a volunteer basis. We supported the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty and No Feast for Work. Blackness Yes, which is a group that's a long-time group that has brought queer and trans people of color uh, presence and safe spaces to pride in Toronto for a long time. And Blackness Yes promotes a very political, very radical and groundbreaking spaces for queer and trans people of color in the pride festivities, the increasingly commercialized festivities in Toronto. And for the group last year called Action, the Anishinaabe Confederacy to Invoke Our Nationhood. And they've had an ongoing land reclamation in Anishinaabe territory and had submitted an application for funding to support with some, to gain some material support for the reclamation there. We were able to support them. One of the interesting things it was an interesting challenge for members of the board to look at organizing and look at politics in different ways. That We did receive a lot of applications based on confronting the injustices in people's mm-hmm. lives, but also applications focused on doing some healing work, looking mm-hmm. at how people have been affected at living under capitalism or patriarchy or white supremacism, and how do they do some healing work to better prepare themselves to go back into struggle. So I think it's been interesting for members of the board to note that, okay, this is some of the focus that people are working on. These are some of the projects that are important to people. They may not Mm -hmm. be exactly the sort of projects that we were thinking of funding. They may Mm -hmm. not be exactly traditional organizing models, but they are projects that are really important to communities that are applying. And so let's make sure that we recognize those when we're making our funding decisions as well. Definitely, we all come to this with our own concepts of what organizing is and what activism is. And I found that to be really interesting and a big learning for me, the role of spirituality, for example, the role of the land and defense of the land and claiming space, healing as resistance. Personally, I'm a fairly privileged person. These are not concepts that I've actually thought about. It hasn't been part of my experience. And I think also it's been really great for the groups that have applied to be articulating that as well in their applications to us in a pretty user-friendly, non-intimidating type of application, giving folks a chance to also articulate their arguments and their politics. Do you see any limitations or drawbacks to this particular way of channeling resources into social change work? Well, I know that we say, you know, off the top to people, if you already direct your funds to a group, then please keep doing that. (laughs) You know, we don't intend this to be a replacement for the smart decisions people are making all the time to take money and direct it to organizing or to work that groups are doing that makes sense to them. And we're not suggesting that one way of doing something is better than another way of doing something. So we're hoping, I think, to enhance rather than replace? Like the organizations that we are funding, we are a volunteer organization. And so certainly there are risks as you grow and the work becomes more successful. There is an increase in the amount of work. And so as a group, how to grow sustainably. You know, we've a number of times you'll get, oh, this is a great idea. We could go in this direction. But we've worked hard to keep the amount of work that we take on very manageable. 
and not to, you know, we've been a couple times, oh, we could do a fundraiser, and we get a little bit tempted, and it seems to happen every six months or so, <laughs> and then we're like, no, 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 we don't want to put our energy into that. There are conversations that we've been having within the group about how to change these conversations around wealth and accountability and sharing resources. And then also trends that we notice for groups that are applying. A lot of groups apply for technological infrastructure for help with graphic design and web hosting and web design. And as communities, as movements, is there better ways to provide those services? There was a lot more tech collectives in the late 90s. Those don't seem to exist in the same way. So we talk about being able to host wider, more public meetings where we have those discussions as part of a movement, but really trying not to take on any work that we're not sure we can follow through on. So that'll certainly Mm. be a challenge. Talk a little bit about what you see both in the short to medium term, what are the main things you want Groundswell to accomplish in the next six months or a year, but also talk about the longer term trajectory of what you hope Groundswell will be able to become. For the next six months in a year, we would like to successfully complete this round of funding applications and decisions, which we will do at the start of April and be able to send checks out to people mid-April, end of April. We'll have our annual general meeting in the spring sometime, and it'll be useful to just take a chance to reflect on what's happened in the last year. Are there structural changes that we need to make? We did add two no board members this year, and we'd like to add a few more in the year coming. It would be nice to come up with a more ongoing, sustainable way of having supporters and get people thinking about donating on a monthly basis. I think it would be great to talk to people about funding and increase people's literacy around that and the kinds of limits and barriers that groups face as they try to do this kind of work. This is our second year, so this is a great time for us to compare the two years and see what's working well and what kinds of things we'd like to do better. I know I get excited about thinking in the long-term future about the kinds of things that we could be looking at in terms of, who knows, you know, can we do loans? Could we do different kinds of investment in social justice activism? So wanting to have those conversations and create space for them. In the next year or two, certainly we'll be coming forward with our plan of how people can access a 50% of the capital that we hold back every year. And we're just in the process of developing how that'll happen, whether we'll do some microcredit stuff, whether people can access capital to leverage other money to be able to Mm -hmm. get support on bigger projects, you know, more Mm -hmm. infrastructure-based, whether those are hardware or that's actual physical space or whatever that is. And so that'll be exciting to move towards. You have been listening to my interview with Anna Willets and Sean Lee Popham of the Groundswell Community Justice Trust Fund. To learn more about their work, go to groundswellfund.ca. That's all one word, groundswellfund.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.